Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralph E. Davis Associates, the wholly owned subsidiary of Opportune LLP, focused on reserves, engineering, and geosciences. During the episode, Steve walks through his 40 plus year career in the oil and gas space and how he first got involved in the minerals and MLP space in the mid 2000s working for a company called Montierra Minerals and Production LP. Later on in the episode, Steve and I trade thoughts on some of the trends we've seen over the past 15 to 20 years as we ponder what the public mineral space will look like in the future. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Steve had to say. Well, Steve, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Hey, Tim. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. No, you bet. I'm interested to get into the discussion when we jumped on a call to prep for this. You had a pretty interesting background in minerals and you kind of maneuvered down the the engineering path of your career to where you are today with Opportune. But I like to think I know quite a bit about the mineral space and the legacy companies and especially in the private equity space. And I had not heard of Montiera. So we'll we'll revisit that later in the episode. But really interesting how you cross paths with some folks who are now leading some big minerals companies now and how it's really a small world, right? But Right. Before we jump in, background yourself, where'd you grow up? You know, why did you get into oil and gas? How'd you get into oil and gas? Where'd you go to school, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll walk through your career a bit to paint the scene and, and then jump into the discussion. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, uh, I grew up in Houston, went to University of Texas during my time there that I was an engineering student, had the opportunity to work summers for Shell out in West Texas. And at the time, well, I, I graduated with a degree in chemical engineering, but it was during that period where I started to get interested in petroleum engineering through my summer work and actually considered switching my major. That was uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. So of course there was an oil boom going on and Shell was hiring people like Grady Shell and others. And so there was a big desire to get people out of school and on the job. And so they they said, listen, uh, don't change majors, finish up in chemi, and uh, we will teach you all the petroleum engineering you need to know. And, and they did. So that's what I did. I went, went to work for them. I worked as a, primarily as a production engineer, but also had a management role and did a planning stint. And of course, along the way, learned a whole lot of petroleum engineering, a lot of uh, geology, a lot of reservoir engineering. And that's kind of how my career was able to evolve from being maybe more of an operations-focused guy, someone who was doing well surveillance, workovers, things like that, to one who was more involved in economic projections and evaluation aspects. So you were with Shell early 80s to the end of the millennium, 1999, right? So you're working with Shell. Did you tour the world with them? Were there certain basins in the U.S.? Just curious. Um, yeah, you kind of your background yeah. from a basin I, perspective. Yeah, you bet. I didn't do the uh, expat route. I did all my work here in Houston, but that did expose me to quite a, di- a number of basins. Uh, of course, the whole uh, West Texas uh, water flood, CO2 floods was a big part of it. I worked South Texas as well. Had a little bit of exposure to some of the other old legacy plays in Texas. You know, Shell had assets that dated way back up in North Central Texas. We had a little bit of things in Kansas, things in Montana, uh, all things that they had, you know, most of those have all been sold. 
So I got exposed to those as well as South Louisiana. I worked four years there as an engineer and a manager all south of I-10. A lot of that is in state waters and starts to have some similarities with offshore uh, geology and somewhat with operations. The logistics are clearly simpler when you're in inland waters, but there are there are some things you have to think about that, that don't happen on dry land. And then we had a, um, a non-operated offshore group that we ran out of Houston office uh, for that basically was covering all the non-operated across the Gulf. And I was on that team for about a year. So I did get to see quite a few things while I was at Shell. As you mentioned, I left there in 99. I went to work for uh, what was Sonat at that time, and they subsequently merged with El Paso. And then they subsequently merged with Coastal. So I was at Sonat El Paso for, I guess, about six years, focused on, had a planning role there, which we've been across all the plays that they were involved in, did some reserves reporting work, and then I was um, technical lead or technical manager for the Texas Gulf Coast area, which was basically Vicksburg Frio between the Rio Grande and the Sabine, uh, and actually a little bit over into, into South Louisiana. Mostly development focused. My my teams were development engineers, geologists, and geophysicists. Work alongside with the exploration manager. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that the Minerals and Royalties Council will be hosting our North Am Royalties Assembly in Houston on October 13th. If you haven't already, be sure to visit our website and get registered so you can participate in the networking and discussion. On the evening of the event, we'll be hosting our inaugural Minerals and Royalties Awards Dinner, where we will be gathering 300 plus executives from the mineral space to give out six different awards in order to celebrate the many achievements from the last 18 to 24 months in the mineral space. If you're interested in getting signed up for both the conference and the awards dinner, then please message me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or go ahead and visit our website by Googling North Dam Royalties Assembly and we'll hope to see you in October. So then now mid-2000s, Montero Minerals and Production LP comes in the mix. Little background on that. You know, it was interesting. You said NGP was involved in that. I, you know, at that time frame, NCAP backed Chris Phillips and Phillips Energy Partners. And that was my understanding of the first private equity backed venture, I guess maybe this is more of a co-invest structure, but I did not know NGP was was snooping around the mineral space that early. So really, really interesting. Give a little backstory on on Montero and then what it became with with Eagle Rock. And, and that's where you spent a lot of years after, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Montero was formed in um, 2005 and it was myself and a few other guys, or I guess there were three of us, uh, four altogether, three others that um, had all worked at uh, Sonat El Paso together. And we got connected with, with NGP to head up, to develop and continue to acquire minerals around a set of assets that they had already begun to assemble. And their, their assembly of those had, I think, so that it happened a little bit before my time. So I, may, I clearly won't have all the history exactly right. But my impression of it is, that their, one of their earliest entrees was in a co-investment with Blackstone Minerals, who had acquired the what we called the pure minerals. They were essentially minerals that were under international paper property across the South. They're, they're also called the IP minerals. Pure had acquired them and then had subsequently sold them. Blackstone had that deal. 
and they uh, needed some additional funding. So NGP had stepped in with a, as a co-investor in that whole package and Blackstone was managing. Along the way, they had gotten involved with some other minerals buyers, particularly a gentleman out in Odessa who had been buying deals and many of those deals were pretty good size, you know, a little bit, I'd say larger than he, what he was looking to invest in. So NGP was investing alongside him on those. And it could be, you know, sometimes he had 10% of the deal, sometimes he had 50% of the deal, just depending on what the scale was. And so NGP had, uh, through those two paths, had amassed a portfolio of minerals. And that was about the time that the MLP space was starting to take off. You know, it had already been active in a lot of the pipeline companies, had worked its way into the midstream business. And then there was uh, some interest in doing MLP-type structures uh, with upstream assets or with things that were closer to the wellhead. So our idea and our goal was to continue to build out that set of assets around minerals and overrides and then have basically a yield-type vehicle that we could put into an ML, a publicly traded MLP. And this would have been around 2006 that we were trying to do this. Now, Steve, do you remember, because that, that kind of precedes my entrance into, this, into the industry, right? But around that time, was there whisperings for others to try to do that? Or did Blackstone make a run at maybe going public? I know they ultimately went public in 2014. And there was the whole... C-Corp versus public MLP structure debate that was going on when Haymaker was looking, you know, Viper had gone public, Blackstone later then followed suit. So I'm just curious if it was kind of a, a first wave that didn't really pan out and then, you know, cycle ran itself through and then 2014, 15 was the next iteration and a couple got across the line. Yeah. So if you go back to that time, you know, you think about what was in the public market that was like minerals, right? You had a number of Section 29 type trusts that had been put together. They were really net profits interests that were designed so someone could could monetize the Section 29 tax credits. There were a few other trusts, a royalty trust that had been carved out. And, you know, they, they all differed a little bit, but it, it seems like a lot of them were almost like a wellbore only type structure or certainly didn't have the entire mineral estate that had been placed into those entities. So those were out there. Uh, you had companies like Dorchester Minerals was already public at the time. I know from conversations I've had that, that Blackstone had considered going public, you know, I'm sure many times in their history and back then had thought about it. And I don't really know the reasons, but they decided that wasn't appropriate for them at that time. So we, uh, when we tried to put Montiera together, we were looking to get to a certain scale that would allow us to um, have something that would be of public markets interest. And after a period of time doing that, we had not really reached that scale, but another opportunity came up for us to roll our assets into the uh, Eagle Rock assets, which was an MLP on the midstream side. And that would give us a way to get those assets into the MLP space. And having done that, we then also started to acquire uh, upstream assets. So you, you think about, well, what else was going on at that time? You had Lens and Brightburns and Vanguards and others that were all the pure play, if you will, upstream focused MLPs. You had a collection of ones that had already been out that were midstream focused. And then some older firms that were 
not really MLPs that had minerals. And what we were trying to do is kind of play all three of those spaces at the same time inside this MLP structure. No, that's really interesting. On a side tangent, so I recently did an episode with David Garofolo. He's the CEO of Gold Royalty Corp in Canada. It's going to be an episode we're going to post here shortly. Bit of a different twist because it's it's a gold streaming company. But they approached me about coming on and I thought there would be some interesting cross-pollination between a commodities royalty space and the royalty space for oil and gas. And maybe there could be some interesting takeaways. And one of the things that comes to mind You're talking about the MLP market heating up and maybe trying to do a minerals MLP or a hybrid, like you talked about 2006 timeframe. So then you look at kind of the flow through of a cycle, seven to eight years later, Viper goes, Blackstone goes, a couple more get across the line. And now we're in that another seven to eight year window after that. And, you know, are there a couple more that go or maybe some mergers or sort of things that happen where you get some more critical scale? Because one of the challenges in the public space, and we all know it, who's listening, is just scale and you know lack of liquidity. And even though the returns may be attractive, certain institutions just can't get into these stocks yet. And mm-hmm. what happened with the reason I bring up the episode with David is that they went through kind of these similar waves. And when you look at the market caps of these, these gold royalty companies, there's a couple who are, are bigger. Franco Nevada being one of them in kind of, a, don't quote me on this, the 30 billion-ish range. Then you have a couple kind of in the 15 to 20 range. And then it tapers off real quick. And you start to get a couple in like the five to $6 billion range. And then they're all less than a billion. Very similar to what we see today. And he said, as these waves kind of the opportunity to go public and, and get a, an arbitrage on spinning the royalties out and create these public vehicles, it just took time. And they combined with each other and organically grew. And so I kind of thought to myself, does Brigham, does Blackstone, does Kimball, does Viper, you know, insert public mineral uh, company name here, become 15 to 30 billion in 10 years? And it just takes that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe looking back 2006, then 2014 to 2021, 2022 today, maybe this is the next kind of two to three year period where we see some of the growth and some names popping up. And we start to see that scale starting to climb upwards of five, 10 billion market cap. So just a, a food for thought, just kind of a random you know, yeah. thing that popped in my head, but history repeats itself and it just presents, it just gets wrapped up and presented a little bit differently each time. So I don't know, something, something to watch for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make some interesting points there because if you go back, if you, if you kind of look at where we are today and you say, well, what, how would I describe a publicly traded minerals company? I think most of them are you know, they're not using the MLP structure anymore. Uh, they are going to pay their distributions. And I suspect there'll be some volatility around their distributions. I'm sure they strive to minimize that, but there, there certainly could be. And when I think back to where we were with uh, Eagle Rock and how we recognized that, well, we learned, I guess, probably the hard way that it was very hard to to hedge through all of the, the length of all the commodity cycles so that you may have some commodity price volatility that's going to influence your distributable cash flow that you might want to be in a air in a, in a situation where you can vary that distribution accordingly and what we found was yeah the market didn't like the sound of that at all and so they wanted you know they wanted those steady distributions to be kind of guaranteed. So fast forward now to where we are today, and it seems like there's a little bit more appetite 
uh, or that volatility to the extent that it exists. And, and again, I'm sure those companies strive to minimize that. But I think maybe one of the changing things was, um, I think scale probably plays a role, but also I think back to how the Viper, the Viper IPO and the success it had certainly exhibited that you know, there was a demand for it and it could work. And I, and I would maybe speculate that some of that was due to the a little bit more clear line of sight on how those assets were going to be developed. And once the excitement of those assets got into the marketplace and people started to uh, desire to invest in them, it kind of opened the door for some of these other firms to come in with their minerals package. It kind of created some interest in the marketplace that may not have really existed until then. So I'll just say that seems to, at least in my mind, to help explain how things have you know, how we get back to kind of where we where we were trying to be, but really didn't seem like the market was ready for. You also mentioned scale, and I think you know anybody who buys minerals recognizes the importance of a the portfolio effect, as we call it. You know, we do a lot of work today. I've done a lot of work over my career in trying to estimate how future wells are going to perform on a mineral block, assuming that they're drilled. And you spend enough time with that. I'm sure, many of your listeners already know that. The, the nuances between our various type curves can be really overshadowed by the uncertainty about when things are actually going to be developed. And so as you build a larger portfolio, you know, as we used to say, we don't really, we don't know where it's going to happen, but we know it will happen. And until you get a certain scale, you really can't make that claim. I think the guys that are out there now have probably achieved that size, it's, but it's certainly, there still may be efficiencies or risk mitigation through that larger scale that could allow some larger companies to trade at a premium. So to your point, do they continue to get bigger? I think there's some rationale for why that would happen. The challenge, of course, is that this business gets more fragmented every year as assets get split up, they go through divorces, they go through estates, and they get in the hands of more and more people. And acquiring that scale gets more difficult every day. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enveris' mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue, 
and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enerus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Yeah, one thing, I, this kind of speaks to more what you guys do at Opportune on the engineering side, but reserve replacement and diversification and scale, I think, you know, when we did the episode with Scott Noble, that's something he really touts a lot and he's really proud of with the legacy portfolio that his team still manages in the tune of one and a half, two billion dollars that they've had 100% reserve replacement since mid 2000s. And I was just on a call with Scott the other day and he just mentioned how diversification and having a large footprint is essential to achieving that. When you get more and more targeted and you become singular basin focused or you know one or two basins, a lot of that is predicated around building yourself for an exit and not really that long-term reserve replacement. And then when you look at someone bigger who's acquiring you, maybe they need to build out that diversification through multiple acquisitions and, and a scale of multiple billions instead of a, you know, a hundred million dollar portfolio, for instance, but yeah. speak to, speak to that and kind of the dynamics of the engineering side. Did you hear a lot about the land angle and, you know, what, what is, when, when is stuff going to come on? How many ducks do you have? But talk about long-term impacts of a portfolio from a minerals lens. That, that would be really interesting. Yeah. I think the things that we were looking and uh, when we were buying these packages, and I, I guess I'll first of all say I agree with everything you said. And of course, you can't really talk about this business without talking about the role that Scott played. And going back to our NGP days, some of those deals that we were in, we were in along. So he, he was part of those as well. Obviously not part of our structure, but we were co-investors with him on some of the things he had put together. So the idea of, of trying to look at it from an engineering perspective and figure out whether it has the running room to be, to replenish itself. That's, that's really the key. You know, you can look at assets that have a lot of well bores in them and they may have had what, what we used to call uh, regeneration. I don't know if that term is still widely used, but basically the, the ability of the, of the portfolio to replace its own reserves and maintain a flat or growing production profile. You can look at a package that has really done that over a period of time and say, okay, I'm going to buy this. And now I've got to make some assumptions about whether that's going to continue or not. And uh, it's really important to understand the underlying geology and whether there are opportunities for that to continue. That is, do we have multiple plays that are, that are present? Do we have recompletion opportunities? Or is this a kind of a single play, a single play type within this package? And once it's kind of drilled out, there really isn't much more to be done. Uh, also looking at the, um, the role that concentration, wellbore concentration plays in the package is important because it may be, yeah, there's a lot of things that can happen, but they're all going to be really pretty small, you know, and really the regeneration we've had might have been due to just a few large, large events due to a relatively high uh, royalty interest, for instance. And is that repeatable or not? So you really do have to kind of get down into the weeds, both in terms of the uh, assets you're buying and the, uh, the underlying geology. It's really difficult to step back and then say, okay, now armed with all that, I'm going to schedule everything out like I might if I was an operator. Uh, you have to start thinking more about 
probabilities of things being done, how are things correlated together, which obviously uh, development activities are almost always correlated by price, but you, uh, it might make sense to look for things that are in separate basins so you don't have basis blowouts that can influence the whole portfolio or things that are in different commodities. So you know, mixture of oil and gas uh, exposure could be a good way to get that diversification and, and not be subject to kind of a systemic event that, or a systemic risk that oil prices drop and now nobody's drilling anywhere on my assets because I, I don't have gas exposure, which might currently be. I'm just curious, would love a little insight. So you've done a lot of buy side work on the engineering side for some minerals companies in recent years. That's how you've stayed in tune with, with the space. But last year, so oil crashes, it goes negative at one point. We're going through COVID. What was it like doing engineering work for, for, for your clients through that period and all that volatility? I mean, it was so difficult to do deals and, you know, everyone kind of knows in the back of their mind, oil's not going to be at 20 bucks forever, but you can't really underwrite that much more aggressively. I'm curious if you have any war stories or just to lift on, up the hood for a little bit on, on what yeah. that period was like. Sure. Well, for, for us in our engineering practice and, and really through uh, the larger opportune firm, uh, unfortunately, those low prices, they really did create a lot of liquidity problems for people, not just you know, on in terms of their their borrowing base redetermination, but their their cash flow and their ability to stay current on their debt. So we spent a lot of time uh, working on restructuring, working with a lot of lenders, and also working with some operators on helping them get their balance sheet back in order. And of course, you have to take a little bit of a it's a combination of views when you do that. We've got to get through this near term liquidity problem. What so what does that look like? But also, what is this business going to look like when prices come back to what looks like ought to be normal right now. I'll be honest, we weren't predicting $60, $70 prices. That's not the kind of thing we were anticipating or running our sensitivities on. We're probably thinking more about $50. How, how does this business look with a, in a $50 range, call it 50 to 60? And of course, for a lot of, a lot of plays in the country um, or on the fringes of even some of the better plays, the development is not really very attractive at those kind of prices. And so we found ourselves looking past the development opportunities and really focusing a lot on the PDP assets throughout last year. I'd say now, maybe that's changing a little bit. There's does with prices looking better and you see better returns on uh, undeveloped wells and companies that are generating enough cash flow and liquidity to be able to actually invest in those, that there does seem to be a little more interest in considering those as part of the value of the company and the types of things we get. You know, it's interesting. I think we're, we're stepping into an exciting, let's call it 12 to 18 month run in the mineral space. You have some larger portfolios that have been assembled by private equity that are starting to mature. You have some, we'll call it 2018, 2019 vintage funds that might be a little squeezed right now. There's always the, hey, our investors want to exit oil and gas, and we need to exit for that reason. So there's all sorts of stuff coming to the market at a scale that we haven't really seen before. So Darren Zanovich and Mason Minerals Partners too is an example of this new wave of buyers that are being formed by, by industry vets, right? They're getting interesting capital structures that are more amenable to underwriting PDP heavier assets with longer lockup periods so they can 
compete. Uh, and, and it's not just your traditional PE structure. So I know, you know, Chris Transier at Bandera partnered with Apollo to look at bigger deals. You got Darren doing it with NGP. They already have gotten off to a good start, taking down one of these larger packages. They bought the the Live Oak 2 asset and the Louisiana side of the Haynesville for 110 million. And, you know, everyone's looking right now. If you, if you don't have a, a package out to market, you are doing your due diligence internally to run the engineering and, and clean up shop so that you can test the market late Q3, Q4. I know there's a big package. Uh, San Jacinto just took the market with RBC into Marcellus. There hasn't been a large non-override carve-out exit in Marcellus to date, at least that I know of. So there's a lot of eyeballs watching that. And you better believe if RBC helps convert a successful exit there, there's going to be a lot of interesting assets coming to market in Marcellus. You know, obviously, there's going to be tons of stuff in the, in the Permian. Haynesville continues to be active. Anadarko's coming back. So I think that looks a little bit more attractive for people to start looking at that again. So stuff in the tune of 50 to $200 million, there's going to be a lot of stuff and a lot of capital deployed. I was going to bring up Daniel Herz's name. So formerly the CEO of Falcon, he just started Whitehawk Energy. And they're going to be looking for big, chunky deals as well. And he kind of started his career in that MLP craze, you right. know, building all his companies. And, and that's one of the reasons that attracted him to the mineral space. So a bunch of interesting players and a lot of innovation on the on the structuring side for, in terms of capital. And uh, I don't know, we've already seen some deals. Uh, you had the uh, Blackstone exiting their Delaware portfolio, Rockridge to Desert Peak. And, and I hear through the rumor mill, there's, there's a couple more things coming in the Permians with some different buyers. So we'll see, right? But yeah. What do you kind of think about this next phase we're, we're getting into? Well, I agree with you. I think, you know, these, as we've worked through a lot of distress and prices, you know, not only have we worked through a lot of distress problems, we had the benefit of prices helping out quite a bit here lately. So I think that's going to encourage a lot of folks to come to the market, both on the operated and, and on the mineral side. The minerals one will be really interesting though, because, you know, we, we certainly have a tradition in the business of seeing let's say a lot of deals on the operator side in the 50 to 250, $300 million. And there's a, there's a lot of buyers for those. At least there have been traditionally, right? The, it'll be interesting to see if we have a run of packages like that, where the buyers come from, are they the big publics and are they doing cash deals? Or are they striving to do equity back deals? Or do we see other I think we have the opportunity to see a lot of participants outside of what the norm, what would be the normal expected channels. Like when Franco Nevada got in, I guess they bought their scoop stack deal. That's been a few years ago now. They really weren't on my radar screen uh, when that deal was on the market. And I, I didn't even really know much about them. I'm like, wow, where did they come from? And, and they, they bid a very strong price. And it makes me think that in, there could be some sectors that have, interest in these type of assets that have a capital structure that allow them to bid pretty competitively. Yeah, that's something uh, I'm just thinking out loud here and I have no new ideas to bring to the table, but it's something I think about a lot. When you look at Franco, they bought Mesa Minerals One in cash last year when most public companies were really struggling and, and would have diluted their, their shareholder base. Franco Nevada had tons of cash because gold was, was killing it and that's their mm -hmm. core business. So if you look at a company who has an uncorrelated business to oil and gas commodities that, you know, is kicking out a lot of cash and can diversify into a royalty stream. 
you know, you look at Alliance diversifying away from coal. And so I, I think we all kind of gradually, you know, naturally look at mining and coal companies as a natural step over. But, you know, are there other businesses out there? I know family offices that are in agriculture. So if you get a large agriculture business of scale, is there a play there? I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. And then, of course, the, the age old question of will international players get involved as they look for a safe zip code and, and yield. And then that's something we continually try to help with. It's, it's difficult. It's a slow burn because there's a huge education process, but I don't know. It, it's really interesting. We'll, we'll see. I think you got to watch bond markets as well and, and just interest rates overall, because if those start to creep up, then, you know, do minerals become less attractive? So that's, that's something that's, that's interesting to watch, but the interest rates have been so low for so long it's still a great opportunity for investors to put money to work in the space. Yeah. Especially if you want to get into something that has a, you know, I'll say pretty steady, can have a pretty reliable base return to it and then give you exposure to commodity price upside. You know, these, I'm, I'm sure all these large publics are doing a pretty extensive hedging program to try to mitigate some of the, you know, obviously they're going to give up some of that upside too, but to the extent that you're able to, preserve the upside or hedge into it as it starts to, you know, manifest itself in the curve, then you uh, could, you know, provide a nice benefit for the investors that could you know, be an, an unexpected one in certain markets. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Lastly, I'd like to take a moment to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. Let me let me ask you a question. So you guys played around the ML, revisiting the discussions around the MLP space in the mid two thousands. I'm sure you did the rounds with infrastructure investors. Is there a play at all for infrastructure investors to get into minerals 
or have pockets of capital within infra funds that something that just kind of popped up. I've thought about it in the past. I don't know if it needs to come out of a real asset bucket or an alternative bucket, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a similar type of performing investment, right? Yeah, I guess it depends on where they are in the cycle, right? I think some sometimes I think about an infrastructure fund as one that might be more development focused and looking for, you know, build it, get the get the throughput and then sell it off. But um, maybe that's more a little bit more of the private type fund compared to a um, a publicly traded one that might be dealing with more mature assets. Yeah. You know, it kind of starts to sound a lot like the sort of conflict that existed between the midstream MLPs and say the upstream minerals MLPs, where there really was, even among the midstream MLPs, there was differences in their degree of exposure to commodity price. So in the case of our, our business at Eagle Rock, we happen to have a, um, a lot of our midstream revenues and cash flow were being generated from natural gas processing plants. And many of those were pretty old that had legacy percent of proceeds contracts. So we were pretty exposed to commodity price. You had a lot of them that had been, there were newer assets and a lot of contracts that were more structured around fee-based businesses. And they were more like what you might've thought of like a pipeline type business. It's just, as long as we can get the throughput, we're going to keep printing this money and you don't have to worry too much about what prices do. So I guess it would depend if you were thinking about an infrastructure fund that was really trying to be more fee-based in its approach. You can see where the, the minerals may have some volatility that isn't appropriate for them, but others may be willing to take more commodity risk. I think that would be the main driver. Yeah, the, you know, when you look at the midstream model of, you know, area dedications, right? And that that's definitely taking on, on quite a bit of risk. Maybe that risk profile is a, is a better fit, like you say. Right. Another area that, you know, is unique with minerals and with a lot of other yield type approaches is just that we touched on it, the, the petroleum engineering, the geology, you know, it's, sometimes I'll, I'll be looking at other private equity firms, for instance, in other industries. And I'm like, man, these guys are in digital, they're in retail, they're in hospitality, they're jumping across all these businesses. I think that the oil and gas space is unique enough and it, it it's based so much on uh, technical information that is beyond just your typical uh, business school education, that it can be a challenge for these non-ENP non focused companies to just say, well, that looks like an interesting thing. I think I'll just jump into it. Uh, you know, they have to staff up accordingly in order to be able to proper, you know, if they're going to be a, have smart money at the table, they're going to need some technical help. And that does create a hurdle, I think, for some players. Or uh, call Opportune up for outsourcing. Well, that would right? work out too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, let's close it out. Talk about your entity within Opportune, just to clarify what you guys do. I know we've, we've kind of touched upon it through conversation here. What you guys have been doing in minerals, what you're looking to do with minerals companies going forward, and then we'll wrap up the episode. Yeah, our minerals work has really been kind of focused on the technical evaluation of opportunities. Really, over the last couple of years, I've worked with a, a kind of a small collection, uh, really doing a lot of type curve work and helping them, helping them establish buy areas or within their buy areas, come up with assessment of what they think, what of acreage in different benches is worth, what type curves look like, what the range of expectations are. You know, we talk a lot about, we do a lot of work on type curves, both in minerals, but also in the operated space. And it's one thing to have a type curve, and it's also 
absent an understanding of the range of outcomes and what, what your portfolio might look like if you drill five wells or if you drill 50 wells or 500 wells. That's important information. And a lot of times, so we, we help people understand that and you know, look just beyond just a single curve. That's really been the, the kind of where our focus has been is just trying to take public data. We've, we've developed a, um, an in-house platform to do type curve generation that relies not just on uh, historical data, but also uses algorithms to forecast the wells quickly so that we can incorporate that into our type curve as well and do that all very, you know, very rapidly. Also looking at the effect of different benches, different operators, different completion styles, try to come up with an analog set that we think will really represent uh, the types of wells that are going to be drilled in an area in the future so that folks can make better decisions. Are you guys typically working with, I'll, I'll call it a, a ground game machine and lots of volume looking at lots of deals, or is it been better fit for you know, what I call the elephant hunters who are looking at larger packages and using the horsepower of, of your back office to, to come through that? And then also these are, there's usually advisors involved on both sides. So you need that third-party stamp to move forward on a larger asset? The work we've been we've done um, has been more the former, where it's uh, a buyer who's got a ground game. They're just trying to make good decisions using the latest available information and want to develop some metrics that they can put their, you know, provide to their team, refine the area they're looking at, have a good sense about what the max purchase price ought to be. Um, have given some thought to what the development pace might be like, given a knowledge of who the operators are, how relevant that asset could be to that operator, and how well capitalized that operator is, and trying to you know, incorporate some probability of future development timing without being overly precise about it. You know, the bigger deals, like you mentioned, those are going to be typically folks, um, at least from, from my engineering side, uh, that have a lot of technical staff and are going to be, you know, have that internally. Now, we do do within the Opportune firm, we have a number of other services we provide around integration and uh, purchase price allocation and due diligence and what have you. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's other uh, colleagues within the firm that have worked on some of those larger deals that you described. Excellent. Well, Steve, really enjoyed it. Great conversation. We took it in a number of different directions. So thank you for coming on. I've really enjoyed the new partnership with Opportune. So um, best of luck with everything the rest of the year here and look forward to seeing you in person soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate you having me. I think it's going to be in a, an exciting rest of this year and early next year in the mineral space, especially as things start coming to market. I'm sure we're going to see some, some interesting action. You bet. All right. Thanks again, Steve. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.